They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, good morning, Venture Christian Church. Uh, how many of you needed an extra pot of coffee this morning? We have plenty of coffee out in the lobby. Uh, your preacher may or may not be about a pot into his coffee this morning, uh, but, you know, it's a good thing. I'm a little wired, and I'm ready to preach. This is week two of the, Lamenta- or the 323 series. Today is all about Lamentations 323. But before we dive into that, I want to piggyback just a little bit off of something Jake just said Easter is coming. It's right around the corner. And we know that this is one of those times during the year when your one is just waiting for somebody to invite them to come and join them for church. And so we want to resource you well toward that end. There's a stack of these out in the lobby. Uh, One side talks about the theme that we're going to explore on Easter. It's called Claim It. I'm excited about that. We'll talk more about that later. The other side literally says these words. We're saving a seat for you. So would you stop right now, think about that. Who is it that God is calling you to invest in and invite to come and be a part of what God's doing here at Easter? Grab as many of these as you want. We'll print more. If we give them all out, we want to make sure you're resourced well. Take one of these, use it, invest it. Please take advantage of that opportunity. Speaking of Easter... We are going to need a small army to pull off what God has planned for us here that day. So if you're willing and available, we'd love it if you would go to venturechristian.church slash Easter serve and sign up to be a part. We have fun serving. We did this at Christmas time, and it was kind of an all-hands-on-deck strategy. We had fun serving together. That could be you as well. We would love to have you join us and be a part of that. Okay. Week 2 of 323. Last week, we looked at Romans 323. Next week, we're looking at Psalm. We're messing with it, making an international 23-3, right? Then the following week, we'll be back. 1 John 323. Today is all about Lamentations 323. If you've got a Bible with you or an app on your phone, open it up. Let's read this together. I'm in Lamentations 323. I want to read it from two different translations. They... And then you've got to go backwards and look at the verses before that to grab out of the context. What is they? Well, the Lord's compassions, the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's look at it in a different translation. This is the English Standard Version. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's ongoing. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I can't wait to dive into that. But first I want to introduce you to somebody that I met at the end of this past year. We tend to anthropomorphize animals. So yeah, I'm going to introduce you to her. This is Bear 609. How many of you have been to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park? I expect a whole bunch of hands are going to go up because uh, I learned this from a ranger while we were walking around the Smoky Mountains one time. 
He told me that uh, that's the most visited national park in the country. Why? Because it's the park with the closest population density. Within five hours drive time of that park, more people live close to that park than any other park in the country. Interesting. This is why it's a problem when a bear like 609 starts to watch too many of those Saturday morning cartoons and they learn things about a picnic basket. And they found this bear lurking, and I mean lurking, around one particular campsite. So they relocated Bear 609, get this, 1,000 miles away, across four state lines. It took several months, but at the end of the year, in December of 2022, the problem happened in June, it got relocated, but by the end of the year, the bear was back at the very same campsite, looking for a picnic basket. Now, You know this. I know this. Bears do not coexist well with campers. And here's the deal. The campers are going to win that battle. They'll probably do it under the covert action of night. I don't know. But something's going to happen to Bear 609 because they cannot have that bear lurking around people. That is a problem. And I'm sure the Park Service views that as a problem to solve. Like a homing beacon. It's drawn back to the same exact campsite. I wonder why that is. How about you? How about me? How many times are the things in our life, it's like a homing beacon that pulls us right back to the thing that got us in trouble to begin with. We could be talking about areas of sin, right? But maybe not just gross sin. There are other things in our life that pull us back in, things that are less than God's best for us like the topic we're going to look at today, sorrow. There's passages all over Scripture that would talk about this idea of stay away from that homing beacon that's going to pull you back in. I love this one. On a time change weekend, this early in the morning when you're not quite with your coffee yet, this is a great word picture. Check this out. Like a dog that returns to its vomit. Isn't that a great word picture? Can't you just see that? A fool does the same foolish things again and again. People who think they're wise when they're not are worse than fools. We want to avoid that. Like a homing beacon coming back to the thing that got us in trouble to begin with. Here's our question. As a first follower, remember, we're called to be followers first. As a first follower, how do you deal with sorrow in your life? Those things that are overwhelming, like a homing beacon that threatens to pull you back in, suck you back in. How do you cope with suffering and loss as a Christian, as a first follower? How do you handle the emotions that accompany the loss of a job or maybe the loss of a friendship or maybe the loss of a loved one or even a family member? And shouldn't our response as Christians be different than those who do not know our Jesus? Yes. Our 323 today has an awful lot to teach us about how we deal with sorrow in our life and how to keep it from being that homing beacon that sucks us back in. Now, before we look at the 323, I want to back up just a little bit. Let's grab a little bit of context so that we can fully understand the hope that leaks through Lamentations 3, 23. Let's start actually at the beginning of chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, pull that out. Let's look at verse 1 and follow it. And as we read this, I invite you to simply feel what the author is writing here. 
feel this. I am the man who has seen affliction. That's a big word, isn't it? By the rod of the Lord's wrath. He feels God's discipline. Why? Because God has been saying for centuries at this point, stop doing this, they do it. Stop doing this, they do it. And finally, God says, well, you've chosen the directional velocity of your life. You're choosing sin over me. I'm going to let you have that. He's driven me away. And as maybe walk, walk in darkness rather than light, stumbling around with a mask over his face. I can't even see what I'm bumping into. This is what I'm feeling. Loss. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again, he being God all day long. He, God, has made me, my skin and my flesh grow old. I feel like I'm aging because of the stress that I'm under. Can any of you relate to that? He's broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. Those words are loaded. It reminds me of another Old Testament passage, the book of Ruth, where Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because that means bitter. I'm not just feeling these things, I'm soaking in it. It's become a part of my identity. This is how I see the world through the lens of my bitterness. There's a better way to live. What's going on here? The book of Lamentations, it contains a whole series of laments surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. By the way, Lamentations is lament. It's kind of a poetic, stylized way to experience sorrow. It's written during a period of post-apocalyptic, almost dystopian view of the world. This in the Old Testament, this is the Mad Max Fury Road story of the Old Testament. Let's catch up, shall we? How do we get to this point? Well, you've got to go earlier on the timeline. About 2000 B.C., you've got this moment when God, in Genesis chapter 12, comes to Abraham and he says, listen, I want to make you, you, an individual. I want to make you into a great nation. I want to make your name great. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing. As a matter of fact, he ends that little discourse by saying this, all people on earth will be blessed through you. It's a promise. It's a messianic promise. Twelve chapters into the Bible, Jesus is coming. I want to bless all people through what you do, and ultimately through your lineage, through your line, there's going to be a Messiah that comes and and redeems us all. That's Abraham. Skip ahead roughly 600 years. The nation of Israel has been in captivity for 400 of those years down in Egypt. Moses leads God's people toward the promised land. Finally, we get to realize the gift, the promise that God gave Abraham, our forefather, back in the day. Skip ahead a few hundred years beyond that, roughly around 1,000 B.C., you're looking at David, King David, his son, King Solomon, the Davidic dynasty, the golden era of the reign of Israel. The temple is built. But the people start chasing their desires. God says, don't do this. They do it. He says, don't do this. They do it. Don't do this. They do it. Skip ahead to this moment, 586 B.C. God says, you chose it. Okay, destruction is yours. 
The temple is destroyed. Not only the national identity, but this is how we meet God. This is how we experience his presence. Can you imagine the destruction and the devastation that these people felt? It's hope inside of overwhelming despair. It's hope inside of overwhelming despair. Let's keep reading Lamentations 3, verse 10. Look at this poetic language. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he, God, dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. Bear 609 went wild. And he's feeling the results of this. God, this is how I feel. He, God, drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I feel targeted. Now, is he? No. But this is what he's feeling. These are honest feelings that he's sharing. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. You know what gall is? It's vile. I read a story not long ago about the Native Americans, even in our country. They would take gall and they would take a little piece of the liver and they'd put the liquid on there and then they'd eat it because it gave like a sensation in your mouth. I'm told it's a little bit like taking a nine volt battery and with your tongue bridging the gap between those two terminals. It like stings you a little bit. That's what he's saying there. This is what I feel. What else? He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all I had hoped from the Lord. It's gone. I remember my affliction and my wandering with the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Oh, there's hope. But he's soaking in sorrow, and we're not even quite yet to the hope that he's going to describe. By the way, Lamentations is five poems, and it's basically you can take chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. Each of these are 22 verses long. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There's all kinds of poetic stuff happening here that doesn't translate into our English language. Each uh, chapter is like an acrostic, like A is for apple, B is for beautiful, C is for chocolate. But it's describing the things that he's trying to get across. It's almost like as, as if it's from A to Z. Let me tell you what I'm feeling. It's recited annually by Jews on a fast day that commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem. They sit in their sorrow. They lament. They remember hope inside overwhelming despair. Today, our 323 is hope inside of a despair triple cheeseburger. It's like you've got a couple of buns, you've got three patties, a bunch of cheese and onions, all the fixings. If hope is that little sliver of pickle, it takes a discerning palate to taste that. We're looking for hope inside of when it feels like the whole world is crashing down around me. So how do we do that? Well, we discover that dwelling on your sorrow will only increase your sorrow. Let me say it this way. Soaking in sorrow just increases sorrow. 
There's a fine line between remembering and dwelling. Let's explore that. There's two ends of this spectrum. Two ends of the way people inside the church tend to uh, approach this topic. There's people way over here on this extreme that would say, oh, you shouldn't even be sad. We say stupid things like, you're too blessed to be depressed. Fooey. Wrong. These are the kind of people who spent too much time watching Star Trek when they were a kid. Who's this guy? Says, don't feel any emotion. We're a stoic. This is kind of a stoicism revisited philosophy. We're not going to feel our emotions. It's just way over there. Listen, God gave you tear ducts for a reason. You should feel. The New Testament says we grieve, but not, at the, not as those who have no hope. The other end of that spectrum would be the folks that would say, listen, I'm just kind of wallowing in this thing. I feel it and I can't just get past it. And my goodness, I'm just wallowing over here in my sorrow. These are two ends of the spectrum. We're aiming for somewhere in the middle. By the way, it is good and appropriate to feel those emotions. You should read the book of Psalms if you don't believe me. The psalmist Many times it's David, is honestly leaking his emotions and saying, God, I feel these things. We just read several of them from Lamentations. How about Romans chapter 12? We'd studied Romans last week. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. It's good and appropriate to feel. Jesus, Jesus modeled this. In John chapter 11, verse 35, we read, you can memorize this verse right now. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Speaks truth. Why did he weep? Oh, we could over-spiritualize it. It was over the sins of humanity and the weight of the world he's bearing on the cross. Well, maybe, but that's not this moment. This moment is the human. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and the human Jesus, he just heard that his friend Lazarus died. He responds with honest emotion. Jesus wept. But he doesn't soak in that. He gets busy and he does something about it. Expressing your sorrow is healthy. Dwelling on your sorrow is not. Dwelling on your sorrow will only increase your sorrow. So how about this? Don't bathe in sorrow. Don't bathe in it. One time our family was sitting in the hot tub, and you know how this works. The pumps, the jets stop going And the waters calm down, and one of my boys quips, well, it's like we're just sitting here marinating in our own juices. And then one by one, we got up and got out of the hot tub because nobody wants to sit there in that with that word picture in your mind. Let me show you two images of what we're wrestling through today. Don't bathe in sorrow. This is a shower, pretty shower. I kind of like that shower. If we're going to remodel our master bathroom, I kind of like that idea. Soaking tub. If we were to remodel our master bathroom, maybe that's what we would put in. In place of that ridiculous garden tub, some of you have the same thing. Your house was built like ours 15, 17 years ago. And that's stu- when the kids were little, we would like take four or five of them and pile them all in there. And we'd like do a, like, a, like a factory of cleaning. We would you know, bathe them real quick and get them out, the, out of there. But, but now it just kind of sits there empty. It's not being used because nobody wants to sit there and marinate in your own juices, right? Don't bathe in sorrow. I remember a moment when I felt sorrow deeply. We were foster parents, and we had a little baby, a girl that we were investing deeply in. 
And I'll never forget that moment of handing her, this is like seared in my brain, handing her, it felt like a metaphor, it felt like a word picture, and we handed her across the threshold of our house in a car seat to a caseworker. And it was in the morning, and I had not yet taken my daily shower, and so I went upstairs and took my shower after that. I remember standing in the shower and feeling the weight of that moment, sorrow, tears. The metaphor here is that's good and appropriate. Sorrow requires a shower, not a bath. Sorrow requires a shower, not a bath. I'm pulling this straight out of Scripture. I want to show you why. Remember I said Lamentations is a poem. There are a series of verses here that illustrate this point. It's an acrostic in the original Hebrew. You're just simply going to have to believe me on that point. But I want to show you three ways that bathing in sorrow, what it will do to you if you're not careful. Number one, bathing in sorrow will poison your life with bitterness. So get out of the bathtub, that soaking tub, and get into the shower. You should rinse it off, but bathing in sorrow, it'll poison your life with bitterness. Let's put that text up again, verse 19. I remember. He's remembering, right? What is he remembering? My affliction, my wondering, the bitterness, and the gall. He's dealing with memories here. And he uses four words to describe those memories. The word affliction, wondering, bitterness, and gall. I want to look at each of those briefly. The word for affliction in the original language could be translated trouble. It could be translated misery, as in nobody knows the troubles I've seen. The word for wondering refers to a restlessness. I tend to pace when I get anxious. It could mean strain. It's uh, used elsewhere in the New Testament of people of God straying away from God in regard to their sin. The word bitterness. The bitterness is the word here that's used. It's literal. It's a literal word. It can be used for the poison, literal things, wormwood or hemlock. You take these things, it will kill you. And the word gall refers to a bitter or a poisonous herb. So what's going on in verse 19? The writer is remembering his troubles. He's remembering his miseries. By the way, there's probably some guilt associated with, because remember, they landed there because God said, don't do this, and they did it. Don't do this, and they did it. Don't do this, and they did it. Bitter memories are like poison. They poison your life. They can poison your relationships. Bathing in sorrow. Get out of the soaking tub. Get into the shower where this belongs. Bathing in sorrow can also lead to depression and despair. Verse 20 said, I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. I well remember them. Literally in the text, the word remember is used twice there. He's literally saying, I remember, remember them. Some of us are really good at that. We remember, remember things. Remember twice. We don't just remember them. We twice remember those things that haunt us. In fact, we remember them twice as well as everything else in life. There's a word for this. It's the word dwell. 
Jesus talks about this a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow already has enough worries of its own. Don't remember, remember. Deal with it. And let's move on. When you twice remember your troubles, when you dwell on the sorrows in your life, this can lead to depression. What did he say? My soul is downcast within me. That word downcast, it means to be sunk or to be weighted down. You could translate this verse this way. I twice remember my sorrows and sink into depression and despair. Twice remember. Don't do that. Stop bathing. Maybe get into the shower with your sorrows. Bathing in sorrow, by the way, cannot bring you hope. You can't hope your way out of there. You simply cannot look up by looking down. You can't find hope by dwelling on your troubles. Hope is the very opposite of despair. So what did the author do? Verse 21, he said this, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is this? Well, we haven't read it yet. He's setting up what is getting ready to happen. Notice he does not deny his sufferings. He doesn't minimize them. He doesn't try to rationalize them away. They're real. They're very much reality. He's very much, though, choosing not to dwell on their sorrow. Why? Because he knows it's not going to bring them hope. What brings hope then? Well, let's switch the metaphor, shall we? We have a tendency to soak in our sorrow when we should be rinsing them off in the shower. Conversely, we probably, let's put that image back up again, instead of soaking in our sorrow, get in the shower, but what should we soak in? He's getting ready to explain this. We uh, should soak in God's faithfulness. We should let it soak into every fiber, every pore of our being. We should soak in his goodness. Let's say it this way. Shower in sorrow. Soak in God's faithfulness. By the way, we have a tendency to approach sin like this. God would probably have us not just rinse it off, but soak in his goodness. Soak in what is behind our forgiveness, his faithfulness. To do this, we need to make a choice. We need to do what Jeremiah chose to do. What did he choose to do? There's a word he uses here. He chooses to remember. And in so doing, he chooses, he actively chooses hope. That's exactly what is happening in our 323 today. He's choosing to remember God's faithfulness and knowing that this will bring hope. Let's keep reading, shall we? Lamentations 3, verse 21 and following says this, yes, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young, for no one is cast off from the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anybody. The, the climax of the book of Lamentations actually comes right there in R3.23. Great is your faithfulness. God is not only faithful, but his faithfulness is great. Think of the most loyal, 
faithful person that you know. Call them to mind right now. If you can't picture anybody, think of your dog. Notice I didn't say think of your cat because they're not faithful to anybody. You thought I was just going to let that ride, right? Nope, we're back, we're back. That person you're thinking of right now, their faithfulness can't even begin to touch the faithfulness of God. Because God has been faithful in the past, I can trust him with my present and I can trust him with my future as well. Because God is faithful, I have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. What do we say? Soaking in sorrow just increases sorrow, but soaking in his faithfulness increases faith. I told you that this poem is an acrostic. There's two specific ways, two aspects of God's great faithfulness. He's faithful, as we read here, and I want to show this to you just straight from the text. He's faithful in his great love for you. He's also faithful in his goodness to you. Let's look at his love first. God is faithful in love. How? Well, first of all, his compassions never fail. The text says it right here. Look in verse 22. It is because of the Lord's great love that we are not consumed. This is God's covenant love that's being talked about here. Actually, it should be plural. His love's. There's multiple ways that he shows it to us. That same word is actually used in Psalm 89, verse 1. It's translated there, mercies. I will sing of the mercies, this volume of things, plural ways that God shows his love to me. I'm going to sing of that forever because it's true. You could write it this way. It's because of the Lord's mercies, his great faithful love. That we're not consumed. By the way, consumed here means totally finished, like done, like over. Do you ever feel that way? Well, keep reading. It says this, his compassions never fail. I love that word, compassions. We tend to think of our God in terms of masculine qualities, and they're there. You read the Old Testament, he has a righteous indignation. His anger burns against sin. But that word compassions, I love that. That's a very feminine word. It literally, in the ancient Hebrew, it means womb. It means the space where your birth mom incubated you for nine months. Everything that grew in you was because of what came from her body into yours. That's the word picture that we see here. Our God, his tender, compassionate love, it's the same as a mother has for her child that she carries in the womb. You might feel like it's your end, but you're not finished because God is never finished. It's right there in the text. You can never say, I'm done, I quit, because God is never done. God will never quit. His compassions never fail. God is faithful in love God is faithful in love in the sense that his compassions never fail, and his compassions also are fresh. What did the text say? They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I love this time of year when the flowers are bursting forth out of the ground. I checked this morning. There's some flowers right outside of my office window. Even the snow they're coming back through the snow. I took a picture of this this past week outside my office window. Let me put that picture up right now. There's several things going on here, including the picture. You see a little sneak of the flowers back there. Let's hit the next slide. You can see the individual things that I'm looking at there. First of all, 
We've got a true statement over here about cats and dogs. That just needs to live there with some truth. I'm not going to drop it. I'm going to keep it up. Then there's a couple other things that are kind of juxtaposed here for me that are helpful. This is a reminder that his mercies are new every morning. This is a picture that Dawn took. I think this was the first moment that our first child, I took him to my mother's grave. My mom passed away my senior year of high school. And I remember that moment that felt heavy. And at the same time, it felt there's something poetic here. The next generation being reminded of God's faithfulness. Death is not the end. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Mm -mm. My mom is with Jesus, which is better by far. This is a, a collection of rocks that were picked up in Yosemite National Park by my kids, and Don drew their faces with Sharpie marker on there. And I remember that moment, bright, sunny day, and they're picking rocks up out of a stream. We're skipping rocks together, and it's a beautiful landscape all around. And I couldn't help but think, this feels like heaven touching earth. And a reminder that his mercies are new every morning. Great is our God's faithfulness. It's like that old hymn that testifies summer and winter and springtime and harvest. There's a word here in this great is your faithfulness line. It's the verb in the original Hebrew language. Not to get into the details of the Semitic note domains, but this word has a connection to our word that we use at the end of prayers. It's the word amen, which means so be it. That word is only found in your Old Testament scriptures during and after the exile. During the time that they were carried off to Babylon, during the time that Lamentations was written, and after that book is written. For example, you'll find it in Jeremiah chapter 52. With reference to God, the only times that it's used is during and after the exile. Here's the point. Oftentimes in life, people don't realize the faithfulness of God until the bottom has fallen out of their lives. God had always been faithful. You read the whole Old Testament, it's true. But the point here is that the people finally realized it. Amen. So be it. God is faithful in love. So make him your portion. His compassions never fail. His compassions are fresh. So make him your portion. What does this mean? Well, claim God. Yahweh is all I have is what he's saying here. Verse 24 says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. What's your portion? Well, it's what you're waiting for. So what are you waiting for this morning? A windfall? An inheritance? A change in your circumstances? Whatever is causing your sorrow to go away? Or are you waiting for the Lord? Let me encourage you today. Make God your portion. Wait for him. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. God is faithful in his great love for you. He's faithful in love, but what did I say? There's another series of verses as well. He's faithful in his goodness. Again, 
There are three verses. Did I mention that chapter 3, it's not 22 verses, but there are 66 verses. Remember, it's an acrostic. And here in chapter 3, there's three verses devoted to each of these ideas. And the word good starts each of these three verses I want to end with today. God is faithful in goodness, so trust his character. We read this in verse 25. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. Trust his character. God is faithful in goodness, so don't just trust his character, but also trust his timing. I wish his timing were a little quicker sometimes. But his timing is perfect. He's doing something. He's accomplishing his purposes, and he's also growing my heart and growing my mind and growing my faith in him. We want deliverance from God now. Verse 26, it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait on his timing. How about this one? God is faithful in goodness, not just trusting his character and trusting his timing, but trusting his his discipline. He disciplines those who he loves. Have you ever spent time around a spoiled brat? You know how you fix that, right? You know what fixes brattiness? Good and appropriate discipline. Learn to lean into God's character. Learn to trust God's timing and trust his discipline. Verse 27 says it's good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Jesus talks about the yoke, his yoke, his burden, and his yoke, easy and light. A yoke is something that really disciplines the animal in the plow. God does this with us as well. He uses the difficult times in your life for good to make you strong in him. By the way, the word in that text there that's used for man, this, uh, this word is not usually the word that's used for man. This word for man denotes somebody who is strong, who is mighty, who has been studying taekwondo, who has been disciplined over and over and over again to have muscle memory when they're in a grappling match. They know exactly how to respond because they've disciplined their body and disciplined these ways of viewing the world and learning how to move their body in space and time through it to respond well. This, if it's a woman, this is Katniss Everdeen or Superwoman or Xena, the warrior princess. Don't fight God during the hard times. God is being faithful in his goodness to you. Learn to trust God's character. Learn to trust God's timing. And learn to trust his discipline. Let's put our word picture back up on the screen, shall we? Let's end with this, this image of a shower and a soaking tub. We spend too much time soaking in sorrow when we really should be rinsing it off. And we spend too much time just real quick, let's get this done, when God wants us to soak in his goodness, soak in his character, soak in his love. Let's say it this way, shower in sorrow and soak in God's faithfulness. Shower in sorrow, but soak in God's faithfulness. Through this message, I bet a whole bunch of us who grew up in the church, you've got some words rolling around in your brain that belong to an incredible old hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. The author of that hymn. 
He's literally taking those words straight out of Lamentations 3.23. It's not plagiarism because the King James Version that he's quoted belongs to public domain. As I understand it, the gentleman who wrote this was a pastor and he wrestled with some physical ailments that kept him from carrying out the duties of his job, his calling, and he wrestled with sorrow. So he took pen and paper and put it together and wrote about it. It's become a beloved hymn that the church has sung now for, oh, almost exactly 100 years because it was copyrighted in 1923. I did the reading this past week and discovered that in 2019, this hymn entered into what's known as the public domain. No copyright on it any longer. Would you stand up with me? I want to invite you to think about that as we lean into response to worshiping our good and great God. Has the truth of God's faithfulness inhabited the domain of your heart? It would be good to lean into that question right now as we sing. And maybe lean into this question that's right behind it. Could the message of God's faithfulness enter the public domain? Listen, there's a world out there that's desperate to know the hope that you and I hold on to. Is it possible that this week God would want to shine that in and through you? The message of God's faithfulness could enter the public domain through you this week. I would invite you right now as you respond in worship wrestle with those questions. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow our heads and we close our eyes and we recognize the truth that you, in fact, are faithful. You go in front of us, not behind us. You're in charge. You're in control. Even when it feels like the world is spinning out of control around us, God, you are faithful and it is good for us to follow you. Your love and your goodness. And we worship you in those things right now. In Jesus' name we pray.